Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating, and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical, and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Welcome to today's podcast, where I'm very excited to share with you all a very special guest. Angelique Clark holds a bachelor's degree in exercise physiology and a master's in nutrition and dietetics. She is an accredited sports dietitian with a specialty in elite physique transformations and has worked directly with celebrity transformations and many athletes entering into the sports of CrossFit, natural bodybuilding, bikini contests and other sports for over 10 years. Angie is involved extensively in meal plan development, sports nutrition presentations, and practical performance cooking workshops for numerous fitness centers and studios, as well as contributing to the development of the Sports Dietitians Australia Masterclass in Physique Management and Assessment, as well as educating her sports dietetic peers on fat loss science and guest lecturing for her Master's Nutrition and Exercise Science students. Angie sits on the advisory board of the University of Queensland's exercise science programs and she is the founder and director of the private sports nutrition practice iPerformance Nutrition, which sits in her co-owned functional training facility Perform360 in Brisbane, Australia. Together with myself, Angie and I have created our latest venture in the online nutrition and training space with our brilliant female-only 12-week program Love Living Lean. And finally, but perhaps most importantly, Angie is also an active mum of two boys and loves whole food nutrition, how this translates into performance and seeing others achieve the ripple effect of great health. I cannot wait to bring you guys her wealth of knowledge in today's podcast titled The Truth About Fat Loss, Common Mistakes and Magical Unicorns. We had such a great chat today that we had to break this podcast into two episodes. So today's podcast will just be our chat together and the next podcast will be the Q&A with Angie with questions that our listeners have sent in and finally a case-based scenario that I've given Angie so that she can showcase her expertise to you all. I really hope that you enjoy this podcast today. So let's jump straight in. Welcome back, guys, to another podcast. We've got our brilliant expert, Angelique Clark, back with us today. We had so much amazing content from her last time that I've had a lot of questions sent in from listeners. So today we're just going to do a really quick Q&A with Angie. So welcome back, Ange. Thank you. Let's do it. <laughs> and at the end, we're going to go through what I like to call like a little fake-based case scenario. So I just want to get all your little golden nuggets of wisdom out of you at the end by giving you a little bit of a case-based scenario if you're up for the challenge. Sure, why not? All right, well, I will read out our listeners' questions today. So if you could just give us a little bit of insight or guidance around that, I'm sure our listeners today will really appreciate that. Great. So first question today is from Trish. So Trish would like to know, what are the top tips to prevent muscle breakdown? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think the best thing is you need to have an overall enough energy through your day. Mm. So making sure that you're not totally undercutting yourself or severely restricting your food. Um, then if I talk about the specificity of what we're trying to achieve with muscle gain is that protein becomes very important. Mm. So rather than just eat a whole stack of protein, 
every meal um, or all in one go or mm. just after training, you really want to drip feed this protein in over really regular, consistent periods of the day. Mm. So it's not a lot that we have to achieve. So basically anywhere between sort of 20 to 40 grams of protein. Mm -hmm. But the source of protein is very important. So we talk about HBV protein, which is high biological value protein. Mm. And where we choose these types of foods in particular are dairy, eggs, fish, so like animal-based products. Animal-based products and, yeah, and their derivatives. So basically um, these are the types of protein foods that you want to be regularly drip-feeding into your day within most of your meals and your snacks, and you want to be eating roughly around every two to three hours because you just need that little bit of a top-up. It helps our overall nitrogen imbalance, and then that's going to be the building blocks for you to start um, repairing the workouts that you're doing um, and to give our muscles the integrity it needs to grow and develop strength. So and HBV is more about animal-based products. We've also got what we call our LBV, our low biological value protein. Now that's more of our vegan-based and vegetarian-based proteins. If some of our listeners don't eat animal products, that's perfectly okay. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit more about why we call them, I guess, low biological value proteins and why we just need a little bit more plant-based proteins than animal-based proteins? Yeah, so um, I love plant-based mm. um, foods in general. <laughs> um, and so even when we talk about HPV protein, I often try and jam a lot of my plant-based mm. stuff into that as well. Um, so I guess if you are following a plant-based or a vegan diet, um, it becomes very important if your goal is still to put on muscle mass that you need to be sourcing plant-based forms of protein. Mm. Um, so in particular, we're talking about foods such as legumes. So mm -hmm. these are kidney beans, chickpeas, lentils, those sorts of things. Um, and then we're looking at um, possibly other sources of protein, but it's because of the high fiber content with a lot of these plant-based protein sources, um, the absorption is generally not as good. So the other thing to remember about these is that they don't have all the essential amino acids that we require as building blocks for developing our muscle mass. Um, so we need to be looking at other ways of combining these sorts of foods that we enhance the overall total amino acid pool. Mm -hmm. So things like, um, say for instance, you have a vegan protein powder. Now I'd be looking for one that is a combination of maybe a sprouted brown rice and a pea protein together, or even better, a soy-based protein, because that's very similar mm -hmm. to um, dairy um, when it comes to um, you know macronutrient breakdown and of course amino acid profile. So using those sorts of things is really important. We now have access to something wonderful called lupin flakes. Um, so this is a, it, it's definitely derived from lupin which is a legume but it's ground up and it's 40 percent protein so i really mm. like to use this sort of product over enhancing food um, sprinkling it over meals and just um, putting a little bit more protein into the food without putting the calories or the energy up so unfortunately with the vegan based protein sources you need to eat more of it because the absorption is less but mm. then also it contributes to increasing your calories as well mm. totally at the total end of the day so having things like lupin flakes is really um, convenient because you can get, like I said, a, a, a great deal of protein all in that, that product and it can go to enhance your other dishes as well. The other thing I would generally say, if you are trying to put on muscle, it's very important because you're not having any animal or animal-based protein products or sources of amino acids is that creatine is very important. Mm. So I would actually supplement with creatine for my vegan athletes if they're trying and looking to put on muscle. Mm. Um, that's definitely something that I would always recommend mm. and to put that into their day-to-day -day meal plan. And I think the biggest misconception is that people think that most people need to supplement with creatine um, because it helps with muscle growth. But for people that eat animal-based products, they generally get more and than 
enough creatine yeah. in their diet. Um, so that's probably another myth that we've just busted today. Yeah. So Angie talked a lot about um, actually trying to gain muscle, but Trisha's question around, was around trying to prevent muscle breakdown. So if say if someone was in a, a deficit, like you gave us so many golden nuggets, mm-hmm. but I'm going to pull you a little bit further and say if somebody was sort of eating in a calorie deficit to promote a little bit of fat loss, would you still have the same recommendations for protein to just trying to prevent breaking down that muscle? Is it still just as important? Um, to eat that protein regularly throughout the day? I guess I think, yes, given the goal, Mm. I would actually say, yes, the drip feed of the protein is very important. I would probably tend to um, increase that compared to the general population though. So Mm. the amount of protein that we're looking at Mm. getting is based on how big the person is as well. So we generally tend to aim for general population between 0.8 to 1 gram of protein per kilo body mm. weight should mm-hmm. be just for normal general everyday health. Yep. If you are resistance training, mm. so this is a big key factor in trying to prevent muscle loss, mm-hmm. you need to be stimulating your muscles. So you need to be lifting beyond um, what you're normally capable of. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that progressive overload is very important in the gym and making sure that you're doing that because I think far too many people just forget that they actually have to do some element of work to lift heavier to grow muscle mm, you always need to break your muscle down to rebuild yeah, it absolutely mm. and push you i mean our bodies are so adaptable i love the human body but we are lazy we're inherently lazy <laughs> by nature and so our bodies will only do what it needs to it's, mm. it's a conservation mode it's a preservation mode mm. and it's actually really smart so if you want to be putting on muscle you need to be hitting the gym um consistently you need to be having a good progressive overload training program with resistance training um and then you are going to be eating a little bit more than the general population. So my guideline for how much protein that you would need is from the research anywhere between sort of 2.1 to 3.1 grams mm. of protein per kilo body mass. So, mm. so we've come a long way difference. from thinking that high protein diets will, I guess, um, hurt our kidneys, I guess, in such a way. So if you're a general healthy sort of human being, the research now supports that if you're doing resistance-based training, you can go as high as three grams of protein per kilo of body weight. But the higher is not better, as Angie's previously mentioned in our last podcast, but also increasing um, your protein intake to try to prevent your muscle breakdown as well. Even if you're not training really hard in the gym, protein is still um, quite important. Do you have any sort of recommendations? If somebody was perhaps in a uh, in an injury period where they just weren't training as hard, but they wanted to try and maintain their muscle mass, what would your general recommendations be for protein around that? Yeah, so that's when I'd probably be looking at that sort of 1.5 to 1.7 grams per kilo mm-hmm. body weight and don't um, just not eat. So the, the misconception is that, oh my goodness, I've been injured. I am not going to be expending as much energy as what I could because I'm now not training Mm. as hard, um, which is, you know, obviously makes sense. Yes, your energy expenditure is going to be reduced. Your body still has to do a healing process and a healing mechanism. So Mm. this is where nutrition becomes really important, um, making sure that you have those building blocks available. Now, protein isn't just muscle. It's also for hair and nails and skin Mm. and, you know, all the integrity of our cells and things like that. So um, it's still important to get that in, not as obviously as much, um, but then combine that with could you be training other areas of your body that aren't injured Mm. to help the integrity of the muscle itself in other areas Mm -hmm. so we've actually had a look at studies where if say for instance your lower half is is um injured doing muscle contractions with your upper body actually will then prevent further muscle loss over time even though you need to heal and repair first as well Mm. Great, great answers, Ange. So the second question from Kat is how important are carbohydrates around training? Well, carbohydrates king. 
you know, mm. let's put that to rest. Easiest fuel source for our body, isn't it? 100%. When you want to do maximal training efforts. Mm. So there are situations where we have a concept called train low, compete mm. high. Mm-hmm. And so we, we definitely periodize carbohydrates depending on what style of session the athlete is doing because we have to remember that actually allowing your body to adapt is a really good training adaptation tool. So mm-hmm. sometimes withholding nutrition in a session will actually build your body stronger, fitter, and all so those training other faster. Things. In other words, yes, mm-hmm. yes. But there are only key sessions where I would do that. So that would look at the intensity of the session. So if it's a lower intensity, a longer duration session, mm-hmm. I would tend to look at doing those a little bit more, abstaining from carbohydrate from that perspective. But I would never ever compromise key performance sessions. So these are the things you're doing. Sprint repeats, so you know multiple hit stuff, so high intensity mm. interval mm-hmm. training, um, mm. maximal lifts in the gym, power athletes, you know, getting that maximal contraction. Mm. If we look at the physiology of that energy system, you need carbohydrate to generate energy. Mm. So in our cells, we have ATP. We want to make sure that this is the energy unit that breaks off that allows us to produce force. Mm-hmm. And so if we don't have carbohydrate available, we are putting ourselves behind Mm. we are only operating at a substandard level and so we can only maintain our energy output at a lesser intensity Mm. without carbohydrate available so just think about the key type of session and what you want to get out of it Mm. if you're really gearing towards a maximal lift a maximal performance a hit a a pb session um sprint repeats those sorts of things Mm. um consistently where your body needs to utilize or be in that huffy puffy zone so in the zone where you don't have enough time for your body to use oxygen to burn fat because that is necessary it's a necessary it takes process. your body longer to do though 100 it's yeah. a longer process and it's a more cost um uh, cost process it's so, harder for your body to do yes mm. it is and it requires more energy mm. to actually break down your body fat mm. it requires more energy which means it's going to take you a lot longer to get the output that you are requiring so carbohydrates are absolute king king for key sessions yeah and that that's based around power and trying to hit any performance goal go faster harder longer but yep. if you're doing a session where you're just trying to sort of get out an exercise session or it doesn't matter if you can't hit a particular lift or you're just going for a long, slow run, you can actually do that session faster. It's not really going to compromise your training at all. So if you're hitting, trying to hit faster, harder, longer goals, that sort of thing, carbohydrates really are key. So I hope that answers your question, Hayley. Uh, the next one from Lily is, is it possible to speed up our metabolism? Well, I think this is a really important question. I, I think too many of us think that our metabolisms are broken at some point when mm-hmm. in actual fact that doesn't really happen mm. our metabolism slowed down we talked about in the um in the previous podcast adaptive, adaptive thermogenesis. thermogenesis so mm. our body does tend to slow itself down which then means our total energy expenditure is reduced and that's what i would call a slowing of the metabolic mm. rate but we can't really damage it as we can't such can it. we no, no, yeah no, we can't and damage it myth. It is a big myth. And I think the biggest key if you're wanting to increase or speed up your metabolism Mm. is to actually have a bit of muscle. Mm. So muscle is an active tissue at rest. It Mm -hmm. requires a constant energy, a constant blood supply. So the more muscle that we have, the more our overall energy um, intake is actually elevated. So the more Mm -hmm. calories we can burn at rest Mm -hmm. if we have a higher muscle mass percentage in our body. Mm. So So go get lifting. is key. Go get lifting. Go lift something heavy, guys. (laughs) Um, All right. And now Brad would like to know, what is the most frustrating thing that you see online or what is the biggest myth that you would like to bust today 
Oh my god, there's so many. <laughs> um, I, I, we need to eradicate the notion that you can get abs in four weeks. Um, I think oh, I've said yes. that before yeah. multiple times. <laughs> that just is a complete false unicorn. That is a hope that is more in an eight week challenge. Or in an eight week yeah. challenge, yes. Um, and so that's definitely one thing. Those magazines that you see, um, you know, they are very misleading. Mm-hmm. So don't believe everything that you see, everything that you read. Um, so that's definitely not going to happen. Um, and a lot of those people that you might see that get abs in eight weeks are either a genetically blessed 100%. or have put their bodies under so much pressure that I can guarantee you that they're just about at breaking point and it's not yeah. actually healthy. Yeah. Or, or they've actually trained their whole life and then just for four weeks they've cleaned up their already clean diet, um, yeah. even cleaner to get to that point. So it's it's a false myth because mm. the 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 foundations of having to do that have to already be set in stone before that happens. Mm. So that's the only way in which you're going to do it. So for the majority of people out there, the general population, they're not going to achieve or look like that in four weeks. So the the pictures claim. Mm. Alongside with that, and this is my second pet peeve, is that they're possibly selling a product or a program in order for you to achieve that in four weeks. Mm. So people's conception that they have to take a supplement or a processed, heavily processed food of some description, protein bar, mm. isogenics, mm. whatever it is, insert X, um, or take fat burn to or whatever. To get a result. To get a result, yeah. you do not need supplementation to get a result. Mm. You actually just need to do the good old hard work, consistency, mm. effort over time, being a calorie deficit um, that you can actually sustain. And you so. don't actually need to follow a particular diet or a particular style yes. of eating either. You don't yep. have to be Many keto ways. or low carb or high carb or low fat or high fat. You can achieve weight loss and a body composition goal doing whatever you please yes. with ever, whatever fits your lifestyle. Yep. Without supplementation. And with working <laughs> with an expert. <laughs> All right. Yes, so that's the other key factor. Yes, consult an expert. Why blindly put your faith in something yeah. that in someone that is totally unqualified? Like mm. that is my other pet peeve. Sorry, there's been multiple. <laughs> I'm really sorry. Get really passionate about this. But you've blindly followed someone. You can clearly see that the signs and the symptoms are telling you to stop. It is not good for you. Mm. And yet you continue to put your faith in someone that has no skills or qualifications to actually help you achieve the goal that you require. And that's probably one of the most frustrating things I see online is that people message me and they screenshot something. They say, hey, this person looks fabulous. I sh-, they say I should do this for their program. I'm like, just because that person has abs and they're genetically blessed and they've released their own fitness program does not mean that you should trust them. Like yeah. so often online, guys, the most qualified people have the least amount of followers, which is it's sad and it breaks yep. my heart that yep. these influencers with millions of followers and hundreds and thousands of likes have absolutely no idea what they were talking about when yeah, it comes to credential. nutrition and fitness. And nutrition is such an unregulated field yep. that absolutely anybody can call themselves a nutritionist and actually not get pulled up on it. Yep. So that's something that's very scary and that you guys need to really be very wary of. Yeah, be skeptical. I always say be that skeptical yeah. scientist because if you if something appears too good to be true, it often Probably is. is. Yeah. <laughs> question everything. <laughs> Definitely. All right. So Maddie's got a great question. So Maddie says, is it worth taking BCAAs w- um, when I train? 
Oh, well, that depends. Um, sometimes I always start my answers with that depends. Um, it depends on the client sitting in front of you, but it also depends on what their energy budget is through mm. the day. So BCAAs for, for our listeners are... So um, branch chain amino acids. Branch chain yep. amino acids. So they're a, um, uh, four um, essential amino acids that look at particularly leucine, um, the, the trigger for muscle protein synthesis, which is why they've so, uh, they hold such high value and high importance when you're doing resistance training. Mm-hmm. Um, often uh, people tend to be taking it because they they feel like they're breaking their muscle down while they're training and they don't want that to happen, mm-hmm. um, which essentially is happening if you are lifting heavy. But mm-hmm. remember that we don't want to fill that hole if we don't need to. We want that adaptive response for us to build and grow from it. And if you've got a diet that's really nice in terms of whole foods, beautifully mm. you know, drip fed in terms of high biologically valuable protein throughout the day, there is absolutely no need for you to take BCAAs. The only time I would ever prescribe it is if I was on a really tight, low energy budget. So say for instance, maybe one or two weeks out of competing for a, a mm-hmm. an elite competitor in mm-hmm. bodybuilding, figure sculpting, um, and I had to battle against removing energy. So say, for instance, a protein shake, which is still processed, by the way, um, but mm-hmm. it is a, a, a good form and source of leucine, so amino acid. Which will um, help to build and maintain muscle mass. Which will help to build and maintain mm-hmm. your muscle mass. So if I were to remove that and replace it with branch chains, I could still get the same amount of leucine, which is that trigger point for muscle protein synthesis, so about three to four grams mm-hmm. as a hit. Um, I could still do that and save myself probably about 80 calories. So when I'm talking mm-hmm. the smallest of energy budgets, mm-hmm. then I would switch to having something like that in there. The other reason why I would take it is possibly if you haven't had um, – if you've – had a long period of time where you haven't eaten anything. So say, for instance, you've come from an overnight fast and you ha- you've you ran out the door, you haven't ha- eaten anything and you're going straight into the gym, then I would put it in there because there has been a long period of time where your body hasn't had an f- influx of nutrition and you could do it maybe possibly a little bit more damage in the gym if you're going in, in an unfed state and trying to lift maximally. But doing a resistance-based training, not yes. going to the gym and doing a yoga session. No, Probably my pet peeve session. is seeing yeah, women absolutely. walking on the treadmill, sipping on their beef. CAA. 100%. So would yep. you agree that in a nutshell, the major- the majority of clients, like general population clients, yeah. do not need Save BCAAs. Your money. Save your money. Save your money. Yeah. Absolutely. It's not going to give you any further gains no. in the gym from sipping on BCAAs before, during, or after. Like no. I think people will, like they just have this con- like misconception that supplements will do these magical things for yeah. themselves. But guys, save your money. I do yeah. not take BCAAs myself. And do you take them? No, I don't. No. And, and the other concept, more is better. Not necessarily because mm. we actually have research that actually will blunt in the response and the effect of what you're trying to achieve when you're trying to put on muscle mass so having too much bcaas or protein in general Mm. actually doesn't effectively achieve what you want it to anyway Mm. so question everything great question all right so (laughs) we're going to end today and with um, a little case space scenario that i just want to showcase to everybody about the importance of seeing an expert i mean angie's a an exercise physiologist but b she's also a really specialist sports dietitian so if you're not able to achieve the results that you want if you're not getting there and you feel like you're doing all the things right please go and see somebody like a sports dietitian you know they spend years and years and years at university and i hope that this case-based scenario today will just showcase to you guys just the background and the knowledge that people like angie have and why they are so helpful to achieving some of your goals so 
I want to give you a little bit of a fake client today, Ange. So as an experienced sports dietitian, if somebody was to come and see you today, um, I want you to give us a quick rundown about the types of things that you would do in your consultation. Just briefly, if they had a specific goal, say they came to you and they said, Ange, I want to get lean. I want to lose some fat mass, but I actually want to gain some lean muscle as well. I don't want to have to slog it out at the gym seven days a week. I don't want to have to weigh and track everything I eat. And on top of this, I have type 1 diabetes and got a few gut issues. Wow. So tell me okay. what sort of things that you would think about with this type of client, Ange. Yeah, and to most people that would sound a little bit overwhelming, but for mm. me that's my bread and butter. Mm, that's what you do day in <laughs> so day out. So it, it could be a fake client, but it's not really because I see people <laughs> like this all the time. Um, okay, so the first thing if I talk about and walk you through the process of what an initial, an, an initial assessment would look like is this is an hour-long session. So we need this initially to get you in to discuss these sorts of things, to pull up these sorts of key factors because this is going to make Make a massive difference in how I direct my nutrition prescription for the client sitting sitting in front of me. Mm-hmm. So first and foremost, we do you know we do the demographics. We have a look at the baseline um, of what their clinical and their medical history is telling me. Um, but before I get into the nitty gritty, and that's often you know you know working with their endocrinologist or working with their general practitioner or any other health professional, I'm always open to communicating and working multi in a multidisciplinary team mm-hmm. to get the best Great. outcome for the client. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's particularly important. Also picking the brains of other professionals as well and, and talking to them about the client itself. Um, but the first thing I need to, more than anything before I delve into that, is actually sort of go through their goals a little bit better to really clarify what that is. So I would often say to someone walking in, I said, well, great, well, what brings you here? So what's really important to you? How would you feel if you'd achieved that? And why is it that you haven't got there thus far? And Mm. so then I start to uncompact their entire journey of how they came to be Mm. in my clinic at this moment in their life. Um, And for most people, unfortunately, this is the case in the scenario because we're such a high-end, you know, resort. We're the kind of the last resort. Mm. They've probably tried every diet under the sun before they finally got to a situation where they're like, I don't even know what to do anymore. I'm going to consult a professional. I've been burnt. I've been broken. Mm. I don't know what I'm doing. So and that breaks my heart here. It does. That. It does. But then it starts the research process, you know. And mm. for me now, being you know a decade in practice, mm. often my clients come to me via referral. So often someone's already seen me. They've been referred by somebody else. Mm. It's not the case that someone's just googled my name. Like mm. I, I don't have a situation where anyone's ever just rang me up out of the blue and gone, "Oh, hey, can I book in a, a consult?" It's always been off the back end of somebody else's mm. that's been to see me. So. It's just what experience brings. So they've already set themselves a standard. They know that I'm kind of a solution fixer. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm looking at most things in a little bit of a different light, but that is the first thing that I want to do is to really reevaluate what their goals are, what that would Mm -hmm. mean to them and what their understanding of the session would be because it's very important for me to understand how I can be the best practitioner for that person and what they expect of my service as well. So um, after which, you know, we do go into medical history. So if you've got type 1 diabetes, I'm asking you about insulin. I'm mm. asking you about carbohydrate. What's your latest bloods? What's your HbA1c level? Mm. Um, all the clinical stuff that, you know, we're trained to look at from a blood value perspective. Mm-hmm. I'm asking how you manage your exercise because that becomes mm. really important. So yep. um, for a lot of people, what are their problems when they come to me in terms of managing carbohydrates, energy and activity? Mm. And compounded with that, if you've got type 1 diabetes, you really need to start thinking about this sort of stuff. So what your blood glucose levels are just prior to a session that you're doing, depending mm. on the session, will actually dictate how much insulin you're taking or how much carbohydrate I'm prescribing you. Mm. So that becomes really important. I have a look at their history of how they are managing that. 
because I'm an exercise physiologist, but because I'm also a sports dietitian, I'm really trained at looking at their training pattern, their history of what they're doing day to day, week to week, what their training volume is, how they're coping with that, how they're feeling. Mm -hmm. So not only objective, but subjective responses to that as well. What's their sleep like? How are their sessions? Do they have enough energy? Um, What are their gut problems and when do they start? So this is a big key factor. So I'll ask them about their food preferences. Mm -hmm. Another one that blows people's mind. I say, well, what do you like to eat? Then I, what do you want to eat? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They're just kind of telling me what they think I should Mm. hear. Mm. Um, and then if you've built your rapport and your trust well enough, um, they will then tell you what they're eating outside of that. (laughs) Um, and that that leads to possibly if it's a fat loss goal, why they haven't got there, um, to start with. Um, so so we do talk about food, but it's kind of one of the least things we talk about right at the last little bit. Mm. I, I kind of go, okay, walk me through a day. And I love the whole notion of putting myself in their shoes. I want to experience life as they see it. I want to see and use my knowledge and my knowledge cap um, about being a dietitian and a sports dietitian about walking through an energy session with them or um, sorry, an exercise session and seeing what their energy is and then going, okay, well, what happens when you pack up your gym bag and you go home? What's mm. your environment like? So I, I spent a lot of time on the social support that they have, mm-hmm. the the skills that they have in terms of cooking, mm-hmm. what, their facil- like what facilities they have available. Do mm-hmm. they have a shop next to them? Do they have the budget to actually buy mm-hmm. things that they've been told they need i.e. Mm, expensive supplements, supplements yeah. Um, yeah and how does that fit within their budget and what is their understanding of that too mm. um we really decompact um food stigmas and mm. also i need to be really respectful and acknowledge that everyone walking in is coming through with their life experience and what they've been told about what they think nutrition is mm. so um i i'm very careful with that because i want to make sure that they understand the truth the evidence what we know but i also want to make sure that they don't feel that they're stupid in saying it mm. um or they've been silly to have been misled mm. um so that's definitely something i i acknowledge so having a look at the support system the structure gives me a really nice um, idea of how they can actually implement change mm-hmm. and what stage of change that they're ready for as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so lots of those questions, as I said, I'm, you know, I'm constantly firing questions throughout that period of time because they've come through with a body composition goal. I, in my practice, I'm a level one trained anthropometrist. Mm-hmm. So, um, this is done by ISAC accreditation. So right. it's extensive training where mm-hmm. I, um, am, I'm trained to take accurate skin folds mm-hmm. And I, and I just want to jump in right yeah, here and say, yeah. guys, if you are getting your skin folds tested, as Angie mentioned, you really want to be getting them done by somebody who has been qualified with the Isaac qualifications, because that, that's a worldwide rec- recognition, yes, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. It's and if someone's just standard. if someone's just taking your skin folds and grabbing parts of your bicep or grabbing parts of your abdomen, it yeah, can be very, um, you know, the variability of those uh, results time over time can change quite dramatically. Definitely. So really, if you're having your skin folds tested, please ensure that that person has um, Isaac qualifications. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And we do. And tell us a little bit more about skin folds, Angie. Like what do, yeah. why would you um, take somebody's skin folds? It's a measure of body composition, guys. Yes. So, so essentially what I'm doing is I'm, um, I'm measuring with some skin fold calipers, which is my, my tool, um, the amount of subcutaneous body fat mm-hmm. on a certain amount of sites within their body. So international standard is eight sites. Sometimes I do seven, sometimes I do six, depending on the client, what we're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, so in general nature, it's eight standard sites that I'm actually measuring with a metal tape. So that's another key factor in, in, in determining whether that, that person is a professional in their um, skin folding technique is 
plastic tape stretches over time. So we are 100% about the accuracy. So that tape should feel cold when it gets pressed on your skin. So that um, denotes that it's a metal tape. Um, so we do um, our, our measurements based off bony landmarks. So I'm trained in certain sites mm. of the body to be able to measure those sites and go back accurately to them time and time again. So I'm, I'm taking seven points in the body that are a measure of subcutaneous body fat, which mm. I end up with an overall sum, and then I explain what that means to the client. There are certain standards based on a general population or an athletic population that we have a discussion about. Mm-hmm. We talk, yes, we talk about body fat, but it's interesting because people have a concept of body fat they come in they go i want to be x amount body fat and i'm like yeah that's cool but what um method are you referring to are you referring to biological impedance you know that scan that passes mm, through the, you or the one that you stand on on the scale they do a lot of that in gyms and that sort of they thing. do they yeah. do um or are you referring to dexa which is mm. another method of body composition or are you referring to skin folds mm. so rather than talk about body fat percentage what i like to do is have a look at the raw figure and how that compares to their body weight I do a whole host of other girth measures as well. So I'm looking at their entire body through space and that one standard point, but that means nothing unless I'm doing a repeat measure from that and then telling them the differences between those two points. So what I want to then effectively show them is that the raw data is that if their goal is to lose body fat, we have identified a safe and and sustainable level for them to get to. We then work backwards from a time frame perspective of how achievable that is and why we want to slow that process down. As we mentioned with our um, our talk about fat loss and sustainability and and slowing the process down a little bit. Mm. Um, And so then based on that, we get a really nice picture and direction of where their body composition is heading in. And that becomes really important, particularly for me in private practice, because I need to be able to measure that change Mm -hmm. and to see that progress and be able to explain that to the client because the, the food that I'm going to give them to to eat um need they need to be able to see that reflected in a physical change because that is one big reason that they came to see me in clinic Mm -hmm. so i have to acknowledge that i have to accept it but that is one way i can subjectively and objectively give Mm -hmm. them the difference and it works really well if sometimes we think that we're putting on body fat but we aren't Um, it really helps them to see that even by in increasing their food intake um or putting things like carbohydrates into their diets that they're not Mm. actually putting on body fat. So if you get them to go away, do the behavior, um, and then come back and retake those measures, then Mm. that's a really nice valid point to say, look, this is all the wonderful things you've been doing. Um, You know, you've had so many other positives happen and guess what? This is the result and the byproduct of that thing on your physical body. Um, Mm. We can see that there's been a reduction in skin folds and we can only tell from that by taking those skin fold measures. Otherwise we don't, we've just got weight. We've just got the scales. Mm. And skin folds are so much more accurate from a body composition perspective than what the weight or the scales are. Exactly. Exactly. It tells us what is fat mass and what's fat free mass as well. So we know the difference Mm. then. So we can see the change on the scale and how that reflects in your skin folds. And then I can attribute whatever that weight is within the skin fold change to Mm -hmm. roughly equate to what we've lost on the scales and we can start to see holes if that's not the case now um, after I do that full assessment with that person so Mm -hmm. I've got all this information now and I basically I feel like I'm the spider in the middle of the web um, and I'm pulling all that sort of stuff together and then they leave that consult number one there's a couple of things that I make sure that they do they walk out feeling more empowered when when then before they came in they walk out feeling more enthusiastic about seeing a change in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And they walk out knowing that they're a part of the process. 
So they're the three things that I want them to walk out with and then I get to work. Mm. So now I spend upwards of probably an hour, if not more, depending on how tricky the client mm. is, if I, how many factors I need to consider. Um, you know, I've, you mentioned gut health with this client. So I'm making sure that there are certain foods that might irritate their gut that aren't available in their meal plan for them to cause or exacerbate that irritation. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at what they are doing from a training and nutrition perspective, whether there's some things that we could look at in terms of low fiber for mm-hmm. training nutrition, um, which is a bit more key factor there. I'm looking at a whole host of other things and the information that I've gathered and then I'm constructing a meal plan that I've devised for them in order to send off to them for them to elicit a change. So mm. whilst nutrition is a science, eating is a behavior. Mm-hmm. So I need to now make that the easiest thing for that person to follow because right. I want to elicit change and mm. I want to take that pressure off them from making those decisions. That is my job as a sports dietitian. I'm going to guide them as to how to do that. And eventually my biggest job satisfaction is when they don't need me anymore because then they can... They know the principles of good nutrition. They know what they're trying to achieve with their sport-specific nutrition. Mm. But they can also be happy with their body composition and they can walk away knowing that they can still utilize those tools even when I'm not there. Mm. So you taught pe- them all of that knowledge. Exactly. People yeah, need perfect. education. Yeah. And so, guys, if you're sitting there and you've signed up to how many online challenges and you've got generic meal plans which cut out dairy, which cut out carbs, which say, you know, this is bad or you can't ever eat out or you have to knock off alcohol altogether and you're still not achieving achieving any results please go and see a professional like that was maybe i reckon five percent of what angie actually does (laughs) in a consult i've been with her in a consult room i've seen how she works i've seen how you know sports dietitians work i understand my own practice like that's just barely scraping the surface of what dietitians and sports dietitians actually do on a consultation so if you're not able to achieve the results that you're wanting please enlist the help of a professional to help get you there So that's probably all that we have time for today. Angie, thank you so much for coming on. I'm sure the listeners have got so much from this. If you guys have any more questions for Angie at all, depending on how many more questions I get, we might even do another podcast. So if you love this, please leave us a rating (laughs) or review. Great questions, by the way. That's awesome. Yes. And if you guys have any more, fire them through. Angie would love to come back on. Wouldn't you, Angie? Absolutely. (laughs) And answer some more questions (laughs) for you guys. As I said, she's really that specialist in the area of body composition and fat loss, but she does it in such a in such a way that it's not restrictive it's not dangerous it is safe it is sustainable as well that's one of angie's biggest things Mm -hmm. is sustainable fat loss so if you would like her back on the podcast please leave us a rating or review and send us some more questions through um you can dm me on instagram or you can email them through to um info at leanneward.com.au and then finally and just in case they didn't listen to the first podcast where can these guys find you if they want to hit you up ask you any questions book in with a consult for you wonderful so my private practice is called i performance nutrition and that is um, simply the word on a website so you can go and contact me there you can contact me at angie at iperformancenutrition.com.au and on instagram i'm iperformance underscore nutrition not that great on Instagram and social media, but um, Facebook is exactly the same sort of thing. So, so yeah. go and give Angie a follow because when she does yeah, post, do it's always got some useful nuggets of information in there. <laughs> so thank you guys for listening in today. Um, please stay tuned for our next podcast and we can't wait to uh, have a chat to you in the next one. Bye.